This is the Living Fearless Today podcast, a show that helps men like you and me who are struggling to get unstuck and overcome fear to live confidently and courageously. I'm your host and transformation coach, Mike Forrester, helping you create the change you want now. Join me as I interview men who've conquered their challenges and soared to success as they spill their secrets on how they live fearless today. Well, hello and welcome back, my friend. And this week, I have got a special uh, guest with me. So Tarek Chaudhry has become a fast friend. We've had some amazing conversations. Yes, we have. <laughs> what we were talking for three hours last time. So he has become a fast friend and uh, has just an absolutely amazing transformational story. So uh, Tarek is a uh, speaker. He is a life transformation coach. And then he's also a Christian entrepreneur. So uh, if you're looking at the the YouTube side of it, you'll see in the background that he has a uh, awesome painting of Jesus Christ behind him. And uh, off screen, he's actually got like this little foofy, floofy kind of. Uh... <laughs> there we go. Yep. <laughs> he's got a floofy kind of uh, Jesus there, too. So uh, hence, not a surprise, you know, since he's a Christian entrepreneur and uh, yeah, but. Tarek is just an awesome guy. We've talked about EDM music. We've talked about barbecue. We've talked about fish, our kids, our family. I mean, it's been all across the board. So, um, yeah, I'm excited for this one today. So, Tarek, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm wonderful, brother. I really appreciate the opportunity to to be here and to more so than anything have gotten to know you and make a friend. So, thank you. Yeah, now we got to get together and uh you know, go to some, some EDM events and do some barbecue and maybe even a little Thai food. <laughs> well, that sounds good, man. That sounds good to me. Yeah. On both sides, man. Well, Hey, let's go ahead and start out. What does it look like for you today on the professional side of life? That's a great question. I'm going to answer it backtracking about two years though. So, okay. Two years ago, I was full swing in the career I spent 15 years building. I was a executive in corporate America at a Fortune 100, leading large sales teams. Loved the leadership aspect of it, but uh, I wasn't happy on the inside. So I stepped away from my career, and I spent the last year and a half just developing my relationship with God and with myself. And learning what it meant to turn my will over to God and to trust in God and to act in faith instead of live in fear. And as a result of that, constant contact with God and pausing and mm -hmm. putting aside all the things that created a lot of stress and anxiety in my life, I listened and God spoke. And as a result, I have now left my career in corporate America and my leadership career in corporate America. And I've transitioned into the field of public speaking, inspirational and uh, leadership speaking, life transformation coaching. Uh, my book should be out uh, the end of the year and uh, also working on 
a retreat based program um, in the areas of helping people with uh, addiction issues, trauma issues, anxiety issues, mental health issues, and spiritual issues. And it's a truly transformative offering that we're creating um, that right now will likely be held in uh, the beautiful country of country of Texas. And when I say country, I don't mean, you know, independent Texas, but the countryside of Texas. So that's an important, yeah. <laughs> important to denote. Yes, <laughs> I am. I am. I'm not suggesting Texas remove itself from the union. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. What about on the personal side? What does that look like for you right now? On the personal side, brother, I just, I live in an abundance of abundance. I I am the most grateful I have ever been. I believe I'm, I don't, I don't think I could be more grateful. Uh, I have abundance in my life. I long for nothing personally. My relationship with God is at the center of everything that I do. I live by Proverbs 16.3. Put God at the center of everything you do and you shall succeed. I have two beautiful sons who I love with all my heart, who I spend a good amount of time with, good quality time. I'm not distracted when I'm with them anymore. I have extremely meaningful relationships in my life. I love what I do professionally now. Um, you know, the, whatever pressure I feel, I put it on myself. And it's no longer, you know, I got to drive massive growth results for, for the man anymore. You know, and my purpose is to serve God in everything that I do. And um, I just live in gratitude and I live in a, in a constant appreciation for and relationship with God. And I live a spiritual life, man. And I've got great practices in place. And where I was a year and a half ago, even a year ago, was a completely, completely different space, man. Completely different space. So. From a personal perspective, I just, I feel like I've been given the gift of life and I appreciate it for the gift that it is. And you've also got the gift of that uh, amazing Husky of yours. So yes. we can't leave out the Husky, man. <laughs> yes. My Husky, my Husky and I lived alone in the woods. I say the woods as if we lived outside. We lived in a little shack in the woods for nine months in Connecticut. Just me, my husky, and uh, prior to the Lord's intervention, some some ghosts. So, um, it was it was beautiful, man. Just we were on it was like two hundred acres of land, backing up to the Housatonic River in Connecticut, and it was absolutely beautiful, serene, and uh, there was nothing lonely about it, man. My relationship with God blossomed so much there. And I learned, I learned the difference between solitude and isolation. Very big difference. So what's the difference? Isolation is where it's just you. You're isolating yourself from all your relationships, whether it's spiritual or personal. That's isolation. You're not asking for help. You're not interacting with the people you love. You're retreating into your diseased mind. And whether that's a disease of addiction, a disease of trauma, whatever it might be. And solitude is the comfort 
and love of the time that you spend with yourself and your higher power. That's what solitude is for me. I spent my days connecting with nature, connecting with God, connecting with scripture, connecting with community. And I spent the majority of my time in the woods with my dog and God. And then I I go to different 12-step meetings and meet a community of like-minded people. And that was my life. That was it. You know, for a period I had lost my children. And so I did what I had to do to heal. So isolation, like when when I withdraw, like depressed the the depression that I've had, the anxiety, when I'm withdrawing and retreating and not letting others know, that's what you're um that would be the isolation you're talking about, oh, right? Absolutely. There's emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical isolation. And usually one precedes another, and that precedes another, and that precedes another, until we can reach a space that we're so closed off in every sense of the word. And most of us go through life like that in perpetuity, and we're blind to it. We don't realize how closed off we are from the people we love, how closed off we are from self-love, how closed off we are from God's love, you know? And that's, that's what isolation is. Isolation is that there's something wrong with me. I can't fix it. I don't deserve help. I don't want to tell anyone. I'm too afraid for people to see me. You know, that's, that's isolation. Yeah. That's shame solitude, factor when it comes in. Solitude is learning to fall in love with yourself. That's, that's really what solitude is. It's learning to fall in love with yourself and being able to do so by knowing that God loves you exactly as you are when you came to him. Yeah. Well, dude, let's, let's take it back. Cause I want to make sure that it's like, it's not misunderstood that it's like, yeah, Tark, he's got it great. He's not in isolation. He's in solitude. He didn't experience anything of what, you know, like what I've gone through or what anybody else has gone through. That's not at all the case. Like you and I have had some great conversation about your journey. Um, can we go back to like um, when you were about 11 and kind of what life was like and then what what you witnessed. And I mean, it was literally, you're going to be talking about something that was five feet away. I mean, that's, we can spread our arms and it's less distance than that. So can we go back to that and, and go from there? Like what was going on and what happened? Yeah, absolutely, brother. So when I was 11, so I grew up in the suburbs of Northern Virginia, which is about 20 minutes outside of Washington, D.C., and when I was 11 years old, my mom and dad bought a service station in Anacostia, D.C., which at that time was the murder capital of the world. It had surpassed Baltimore and was number one. And um, I started working there with my dad when I was 11 years old. And I was um, outside sweeping. And my dad was in the, in the garage in the shop. And um, he had gotten into an altercation with a, a gentleman who would frequent our establishment and try to steal and 
harass our customers. And they got into an argument about 30 minutes prior. And I saw him coming back. And I saw like something bad was going to happen. And so I started screaming for my dad and I started running towards him. And I said, dad, dad, dad. And I got about five feet away. And by the time he turned around, that guy stabbed my father right in front of me, right in the ribs. Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember watching his his white polo shirt just all blood, all red. And I just felt trapped in fear. I was paralyzed. Five feet away from me, my father was stabbed, and I couldn't do anything about it. And then I started to think to myself, well, could I have? Did I do something? Was I scared? Was I weak? Did I let my father get stabbed? And that that was a very character-defining moment for me. Um, going even further back than that, Mike, that wasn't my first exposure to to violence um, and and to varying forms of abuse. So it had already been instilled in me, not even by the person, but by the experience itself, fear was instilled in me. And in that fight, flight, or freeze situation, my young mind froze. And then any time I was brought to that heightened sense and I felt that same feeling, I would freeze. And going from a little boy to a young boy to a prepubescent to a teenager, I always thought that I was really weak and afraid. And I mean, I had bullied at school so much in elementary school, just and I always felt super weak because in those situations, I, I would freeze. I was powerless. And um, I carried that my entire life. And it was extremely profound in how it impacted me. And, you know, and the amount of self-discovery and deep work that I've done in the last couple of years, I, I had a level of self-awareness, but I had nowhere close to a f- as big of a grasp on it as it merited it uh it shaped so much of my identity up until even 2 years ago how so like so you talk about the fear of of feeling like hey i'm i'm weak i can't stand up right how did that continue to play out you know as as you're going through like your twenties and, and then you became an executive. I mean, like how is that fear showing up in your life? The number one primary driving emotion in my life has been fear. Hmm. It either paralyzes me or it compels me beyond composure. And, um, I developed a massive inferiority complex, but from an identity perspective, I literally created a version of myself that people would be afraid of because I was so afraid of them hurting me. I wanted to project an image, a false bravado of, I'm a tough guy. You don't, 
you don't want to mess with me. Even though on the inside, I was terrified. And so I developed this persona that was a powerful presence that was intimidating purposely because that was a defense mechanism that I created. You, the way, just the way I looked or just the way I carry myself, I'm not someone that you want to mess with. That's what I did intentionally in every aspect of my life. And it was just, I always had to have something to prove. And a big part of it, Mike, too, is when I started drinking and exploring drugs, I wasn't afraid anymore. That scared little boy wasn't there anymore. And in situations like that, you know, people were right to be afraid of me because I was crazy. I had no inhibitions. I felt liberated from my fears. And um, I, I, I didn't feel isolated. I didn't feel like I couldn't let people in. I was wild. I was fun. But, you know, I was, I was always willing to do more than everybody else was. Um, so I just created this identity that was just false in every aspect. All of it was based in fear, fear of rejection, fear of physical attack, fear of emotional attack. And everything I did was, was based in fear, even becoming wildly successful. I was too afraid of my father being right. You know, he used to tell me that I was a good for nothing bum, that I'd amount to nothing in life, that I'd never be worthy of a woman's love. And I was so afraid that he was right, that I used that fear to prove him wrong. And I developed this false ego that was created from a massive inferiority complex. And so, I mean, I was, I was basically a modern day Napoleon, you know, I had this massive, massive inferiority complex that made me think I was like the man. And, um, you know, it was, it was all this little boy. It was this little boy who was crippled by fear, who so badly wanted his father's love, who so badly wanted to be accepted by people inside and outside of the home who didn't have a place in the world, who didn't feel like he fit in anywhere, who literally shaped himself into becoming something that was not authentically him at all. It's what other people would accept. And so I spent my whole life chasing love, chasing self-worth, chasing respect, and chasing value to people. I thought you had to like earn love by being worthy enough to make someone feel better about their life. That's what my perception of love was at that time. And um, yeah, fear, fear drove everything, man. It drove nothing and it drove everything. Yeah. So like for me, I know fear was definitely like the guiding and it was almost like the, at the helm of the boat, right? The person steering the wheel in the decisions I made, which in turn caused me to play small in everything I did because I was afraid of people's um, perspective of me, right? If I failed, then it's like, they're going to see me and I'll be thrown off to the side. Was fear kind of doing the same thing with you 
or it sounds like you were really pushing to to elevate and prove your worth, right? Yeah, brother. I was I was trapped inside of my parts. You know, there was a part of me that I never addressed that was the scared little boy. There was a part of me mm-hmm. that I never nurtured he, him and my 16-year-old angry teenager. I never nurtured these two. And so it depended on the situation. Who was going to show up? And so I so badly didn't want my father to be right that it actually created this false sense of strength. And, but it was, it was pure self-hatred and shame that drove me to become successful. I, I woke up handcuffed to a hospital bed when I was 29 years old. I knew I had a drinking and drug problem by the time I was 21. I tried to solve it by enlisting in the army, getting some discipline. That didn't work. And when I was 29, about six months after my father died in my arms, about six months after my brother was hanging on for his dear life after a massive brain aneurysm, my mom walks into a hospital and that's what she has to look at. Was her youngest child handcuffed to a hospital bed. Mike, I hated myself so much that I shut all of those parts of myself down. I killed them. I buried them. I neglected them. And I catapulted myself into using my pain, using my hatred, using my grief to build something. And and it worked, man. You know, I didn't pick up a drink or a drug for 3,010 days. It worked to change everything on the outside. It worked to achieve so much professionally. It worked to earn all those people's respect and admiration and and all that. But I never fixed me on the inside. You know, I just tried to bury my pain by creating new pain and new distraction. And uh, that that all came to a screeching halt, my friend. Yeah, and three thousand days, man. I I sat there and I went, "That's a lot of time, dude." We're talking eight and a quarter years that it was like you forged yourself into another person, right? One hundred percent. So one hundred percent. This was not like a small feat that you did, and. Yeah. It, I mean, that's a lot of concerted effort to be somebody where, like you said, you buried your emotions, you buried these parts of you that you were ashamed of. You didn't feel, you know, confident. So when you're finding yourself at that point, you know, 3,010 days later, did you then go, Hey, I really need to address who I am on the inside, like what I've buried and and ignored and just literally killed this part of me? Or was there additional stuff that had to bring that to the surface where you're like, Hey, I need to address this. Oh man. No, that did not happen on day 3011. No, not at all. I wish it did. Actually, I don't wish it did because it happened exactly how God designed it to. So I'm very grateful for all of it at this point. But no, brother, you know, I had uh, I had emotionally relapsed. So 
in, in recovery, we talk about things like emotional relapse, social relapse, physical relapse, um, spiritual relapse, mental relapse. And I had an emotional relapse, um, about four years before I actually picked up a drink. And at four years sober, there was a, a event that occurred in my life that triggered. I don't like the word triggered anymore, but it did. It, that, that was a purpose that served. It, it triggered me. And I felt all of those things that I buried come alive. And for the first time in four years, I started to feel myself crack. And so this persona that I built said, huh. oh, yeah, well, I'll just go do more. I'll work harder. I'll achieve more. I'll create intentional pain. I'll use my addict mind to go do good. I'm going to go help more people. I'm going to go make more money. I'm going to go help other people make more money. I'm going to do all of these things to bury you again. I'm not going to let you come back to the surface. You know, I don't need you. You a uh, uh, hurt little boy, you scared little boy. I don't need you. And um for 4 years, I I I I tried to bury it more and more and more. And I was literally living two completely different lives. Because I'm projecting this powerful, strong man that's a leader in his industry, a leader in his community, a leader in his family, a leader in his social groups. And on the inside, I'm dying. I'm so heartbroken. I'm so beaten down. I'm so sad. But on the outside, I'm a rock. And when I finally relapsed, it was nine months after I had um, separated with my ex-wife. And I had gotten into another pseudo-relationship shortly afterwards that was about the most toxic experience, probably for both of us. Um, imaginable. And for me, I felt like I was in a relationship with my father. And for her, she felt like she was in a relationship with her father. And so we both were activating each other's traumas. And um, I finally got to the point where I had so much resentment inside of me. I, I hated all the people I had loved. I hated my dad. I hated my ex-wife. I hated this woman. I hated all the people that I served. I started, I was just consumed by hatred for everybody because I had nothing but self-hate inside of me. No self-worth and self-hate. On the outside, I'm just, I'm, I'm living my life to serve people. You know, all the people I love, I'm living my life to serve you and to make you happy. Well, I, I didn't feel like it was happening in return, you know, because I didn't even know how to receive love, let alone, I didn't know how to give love. The, the type of love I was trying to give people was unrealistic, man. Like that's, that's some hero, Clark Kent, Superman kind of stuff. That's not real, but I thought that's what you had to do. And I was creating this standard that I myself couldn't even live up to.
And I'm broke, man. That I got a big case of the efforts and I broke. And I was in Germany at Oktoberfest on a guy's trip when I finally decided that I was going to pick up a drink after 3,010 days. And brother, within 24 hours, I knew I was in a ton of trouble within 24 hours. But I tried to lie to myself. Don't forget who you've become. Don't forget what you're capable of. Don't forget what you did with your life. You're in control. And I was not. I was not in control. Mike, I burned my life to the ground in a matter of two months. My relapse was so bad. And I was so out of control. And even though I was sober for eight and a half years and I built all this discipline and all this mental toughness and all of this success, it was all out the window, man. I was back to being an addict. And that addict was that damaged little boy and that angry teenager and that unloved young man. That's Those are the parts of myself that created my addiction. And I was lost, brother. I was gone. In, in a matter of less than two months, I was arrested for the first time in my life. And it was bad, really bad. And that night when I came home from jail, that's the first time in my life I walked away from isolation. And I dropped to my knees and I said, I don't know who you are. I don't know what your name is, but I beg you to save my life. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I don't know what's happened to me. I can't do this. I was living my worst nightmare. Never did I ever think I would relapse. I had it all, man. I had, I had people's dreams. I was living a lot of people's dreams, dream life, but I had nothing. I thought I had it all, but I had nothing. And um, God, God spoke directly to me that night, and I took it for granted. And I once again, within a few months, was like, let me prove to everyone I'm still that guy I used to be so that I can earn their respect, that I can show that I'm capable, that I can show that I can be a comeback again. Let me, let me go and show these people, you know, who I am. And, uh, Lo and behold, a couple months after that, relapsed again. Did the same thing, trying to use my self-will, trying to use, you know, the toxic masculinity that society instilled in me. Well, a man's only good for for what? You know, you can't do it on your own, then you're not a man. You can't be worth something in life, then you're not a man. Men don't need help. Men just get up. And... I kept trying to do it, but bro, I, I was never a man. I was a hurt little boy in a grown man's body. <laughs> I was an angry teenager in a grown man's body. I was a lonely young man in a grown man's body. I wasn't a man. No one taught me how to be a man. I didn't have God in my life. What kind of man was I? It's so almost I one of those when uh, we bury the stuff, like you redoubled your effort, right, on forging the new Tarek. And when we, we redouble our effort to, you know, strengthen up and appear in this facade, you know, put on our masks, dude, that stuff comes back with a vengeance. And, uh, 
I don't, I don't know of anybody that's, you know, tried that route that it succeeded for where they're genuinely happy because that stuff is always there. The thoughts are there. It's not until we genuinely go in and we're honest about how we feel, where we're at, that we can heal and truly experience happiness and uh, feel like a man. Because otherwise, it's like we're we're that trapped little boy that uh, gets a megaphone and, and says all kinds of stuff to us about who who we believe we are and we believe those lies. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised, man. It's, it rises to the surface and comes back with a, a vengeance to just beat us, beat us back into uh acknowledgement. Um, during this time, were you still like within the, you know, like the corporate side of life or did, did that crumble with stuff or, like, how did things play out there? No, I was still in the corporate side of life, man. Um, but, you know, when I got arrested, it it was all over the news. Mm-hmm. It was on social media. My mugshot was everywhere. Um, but, you know, God intervened that night and he saved my life. You know, if I hadn't had that spiritual experience with God the day before that article came out, I I would not be here today. I I assure mm. you that. And again, I had something to prove. So they gave me a cup. They, they didn't give me a couple months. I took a couple months. They they were going to give me as much time as I needed to to get right. And uh I felt so much guilt and shame for what I had done. I said, all right, let me, let me take a month. All right, fine. I'll take two months. Let me go back and be the best I've ever been, be the best leader I've ever been, be the best person I've ever been and do all this and do all that. Man, you can't heal 40 years of trauma in two months. You, you can't have lasting change after two months where you're not even really dealing with the root issues in the first place. So I went back after two months and six months later, I relapsed again. Hmm. And so I had to take another leave of absence. Another two months, sober, another six months, relapsed again. And it was that time where that last time, because when I relapsed that last time in, I, I, I lost my children. I am a single father. I have the most beautiful five and six year old boys with autism. And that was the only thing I was holding on to in life. It was all, all I had left was my kids. The most important thing I ever wanted in life was to be the father, a father to sons. Not that I don't want a little girl. Don't get me wrong. I hope that's in the cards for me, but I wanted to raise boys because I always wanted to be the father that I never had. God bless his soul. I love my father so much. The relationship him and I have now, man, I understand my father so much. I understand his pain, his suffering, his actions, his, his efforts, his traumas, all of it, man. I I love my dad so much, man. And it was to to say that to you now, if you had heard me talk about my father a few years ago, you'd think you were talking to a completely different person. And, um, 
I wasn't allowed in the same room with my children. And I dropped to my knees right here again. Only the second time in my life I ever dropped to my knees. First time was when I begged God to save my life. That's when I found, that's when I found him. He found, well, he was already there, but I found him. And the second time I dropped to my knees literally right here. And I begged God to end my life. Not to save it, to end it. I was lost. There was, there was nothing, all the false strength that I thought I had, it, it was, it crumbled and shattered into a million pieces, man. I was not even a semblance of a good man. There, there was nothing left in me. I thought the only good thing I could do was let God kill me. That's what my worth was at that point. And he once again answered, and he did take my life. He did. He took it under his protection. He took my life under his protection. And that's when I said, I got to walk away from it all, man. I got to stop proving to people that I'm okay because I'm not okay. I'm not. I'm not okay. I can't do this on my own. I'm not capable of doing this on, the, on my own. I need help. I want help. I'll do whatever people smarter than me tell me to do. I'll take however long it takes. I'll put my trust in God that all the things that I thought were so important clearly aren't. Right? I, I lost, I lost the respect of people. I, I lost status. I lost. I, I didn't lose. I gave away a fortune that I worked so hard to build. I squandered it on sin. And I robbed my children of their security and their future. My children would have been set for life. Like my boys will more than likely need some type of assistance their whole life. And it was there for them. It was, they were going to live a good life till they were in their eighties. And it was gone. I gave it all away to Sid. And it was in that, in that moment, pure surrender. I, I can't do this alone, man. I need help. Nothing matters. The job doesn't matter. The money doesn't matter. The, 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 the worth that I'm trying to buy from people doesn't matter. Like nothing matters. I, I need help. I got, I am, I am a hurt, traumatized man and I am need help. And I, I did. I went and I got help. And I said, however long it takes, I gave myself a minimum of one year to just focus on spirituality, recovery from addiction, trauma work, trauma therapy. And I dedicated my whole existence to that. And again, I had lost my kids, man. I was only allowed, you know, in a public place, supervised with my kid for one hour a week, hmm. you know? looking at their empty beds and then having to go to Chick-fil-A to see my children. That was, um, I was brutal, man. I was brutal. And to know how badly my kids needed me and how badly I needed them. But in order to ever get that back fully, I had to leave. I had to. Otherwise I could never fully be there for them if I didn't get right. And, you know, man, I trusted in God. 
And every day since then, I battled myself, I battled my demons with help, with God's help, with the help of the people that God put in my life, with the help of community, with the help of other men, with the help of women. Like, I just, anywhere I could get help, I took it. I humbled myself. I said, I need to learn from people who are far more equipped to teach me than, than I'm capable of teaching myself. And for the first time ever, not even realizing it until six months later, for the first time ever, I actually showed myself an act of true self-love. What people thought didn't matter. What I thought people thought didn't matter. Nothing mattered other than healing. That was, that was it, man. Just healing, actually investing kindness into myself, not anger, not rage, not self-hate, not shame, not guilt, not revenge, not resentment, not ego, love. For the first time in my life, I loved myself. And it was the complete opposite of what I was taught was love. It was a complete opposite of what I was taught a man should be. I did the opposite, and the opposite gave the result that I desired my entire life. But the most important thing I ever did, man, was I humbled myself to God. It was, I didn't have God in my life. And even when he revealed himself to me, I didn't put him at the center of my life. I didn't listen to what he told me to do. And I went and I did my own way again, and I did my own way again, I did my own way again, and he never left me, man. I left him. He never left me. And so, yeah, no, bro. I, I, at 3,011 days, brother, I was still too stupid, pardon my language, to realized that I needed help or that let me reframe that I was too ignorant to realize that I was the last person in the world that could actually help me the parts that were leading me the mind that was leading me was my worst enemy and I was using my worst enemy to fix my problems yeah I think that's like one of the biggest like fallacies is that I can figure my way out of this alone. I know I tried time and time and time again and just could not get there, but it was because I was working under other lies. And when you try and heal under lies and build a life that's real, it doesn't happen. You know, that's, you talked about community and relationships around you. That's a pivotal component, man, of having people that can tell you, you know, hey, yeah, I'm here. But then also being able, you know, when we allow them to speak into our lives and say, hey, I'm seeing this and, you know, get beyond our facade, those masks that we hold up, right? Um, you know, trying to be a chameleon and, put on all the right colors and look like we're good. 
man, having that community will make a big, big difference. Oh yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, it sounds like you then discovered like love is not something you have to earn. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Okay. You're nodding your head. Cool. Then how did that also impact how you interacted with your boys? Like when you learned like love was just something freely given and not that you had to earn it. Did that affect you as a dad with your, with your sons? That's a great question, man. You know, it's interesting. I thought I was the only person who had to earn love. I would freely give it, but I I just thought I had to earn it. But also the love that I would give was, and, and in a lot of ways, man, you know, I, in a lot of ways, like sometimes no matter what someone gave me, it wasn't good enough because I never thought I was good enough. And so it's like, well, I'm trying 150 times harder than you are. Like, what about me? But you know what, man? Like, I was trying so hard to make people love me instead of just realizing, oh, I'm loved. So, I mean, when you're trying so hard to make people love you, you're full of resentment because it's it's really hard to force somebody <laughs> to love you, you know? And um, But no, with my sons, man, I never wanted my children to experience what I experienced in my childhood, man. I, no child should ever, ever experience what I experienced in my childhood. And that's a part of what my sober from drugs and alcohol yet still highly diseased mind told me when I left my ex-wife. I thought our differences were irreconcilable. And I swore to myself that I would never raise my children in an unhappy home. And I was so unhappy and I didn't see a way back. And at the time, I thought I made the right decision. I thought, her and I can't work it out. My kids deserve two happy parents in two separate homes versus two unhappy parents in one home. But both my ex-wife and I, man, we, we both never, ever wanted our children to experience what we did. And so, man, the the love that I gave my kids, it was the purest love I was capable of giving. But I was so damaged, man. I shouldn't say damaged. That's not a good word to describe a human being. I was so neglected, primarily by myself that I overcompensated in every part of my life in one way, shape, or form to try to fill a deficiency or here or there. And to a point, I gave my kids like too much tender love, right? Like the thought of ever laying a hand on my child, like no shot, dude, no shot. Do you like, I I know what it is to experience that. Like, no. But in a way, like, it was almost like I was too easy going, you know, like I let them do stuff that they probably shouldn't have done. But it's just because I only wanted them to feel safe and secure and happy 
when in actuality, brother, I was so damaged at the end of it, they weren't safe. They weren't secure. They had this false sense of happiness, but I was, I was a disaster, man. It, it got to the point where, you know, my kids would go to sleep and I'd be getting messed up after I put my kids to sleep with them in the house. Like it got, it got that bad. And, you know, I would have people come over after my kids would go to sleep. It was, it, it was, it was bad, man. Like, you know, I, I can only say that. Man, thank God, man. Praise God. That's all I can say. I don't know what else to say, brother, but praise God. Like yeah. he opened my eyes to so much, but I can tell you this too. If I didn't suffer the way I suffered, I wouldn't have any clarity on all, any of this. Yeah. I'd still be confused. I'd still be searching. I, I'd still be in isolation mm-hmm. and doing it all the wrong way. You know, God's beautiful plan was just executed so flawlessly. And, you know, it's like he finally one day just came and was like, all right, well, you need to be hit upside the head and hit me upside the head. And I was like, wake up, stupid. Um, yeah. But yeah, man. So, but now it's like with my boys, I now understand what love looks like. Mm. And, and I, I wish I could remember. So, where it is in the Bible, but the Bible says something along the lines of a child should welcome their parents' discipline and a parent should welcome disciplining their, physically disciplining their children. And the way I interpret physical discipline, my God, my relationship with God, my God is not telling me to go beat my kids. Mm-hmm. My God is saying, make them work. You, you, you let them know what a little bit of physical work looks like. You, that's physical discipline. And now, granted, my children are five and six years old. So, you know, there's only so much that I'm going to do. But um, I, use, I use the Bible to, to guide how I, I want to be a father now, man. You know, I created the father I never had, the the earthly father I always wanted. I created through my heavenly father. My relationship with Jesus Christ is my relationship with Jesus Christ. I didn't learn about my relationship with Jesus Christ in in the walls of a church. I learned it in the pages of the Bible and in my heart and in my meditations with God. And don't get me wrong, I love to go to a church, man. I love to be in the energy of a room where everybody is worshiping Jesus and absorbing the power of the Holy Spirit. And like, there's nothing better than that. But that's what I do now, man. I learned to love both my children, myself, and other people um, with biblical principles, which I'm not shooting from the hip anymore when it comes to like the most important relationship and role I will ever have in my life, which is being a father. You know, most of us, we shoot from the hip. We either give exactly what we are given or do the total opposite and don't realize like there's a medium, like there's a place in between and we all try to overcompensate and we all don't want to pass what's been passed down to us and don't want to give our kids the experience that's been given to us or we, or some of us grew up dirt poor and we want to give them everything. Well, then guess what, man? You're going to make their generation dirt poor because they're not going to know how to work for themselves. You know, what is that saying? Hard times create strong men, strong men 
create easy times, easy times, create weak men. Right? So there has to be a balance. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, and that's so true. It goes in cycles. Um, one thing that I was wondering, I know I had gone through like almost like that roller coaster of getting it together. And then I would fall back and I kind of didn't kind of, I manipulated my family into believing that I wanted to be there and I did want to be there, but I hadn't addressed me, right. The, the hurt. So I was kind of, I was ruining the trust that was placed in me. So over time, my family quit believing that I was actually genuinely changing. And when I finally did, then there was a time frame that it took for them to believe that, Hey, Mike is the new Mike, not the, uh, you know, emperor's new clothes kind of thing. Right. Did you, when you had, you know, reforged yourself and then had, you know, resurged back into who you were, you know, like you, you kind of slid back into the, um, the alcoholism and medicating, right? When you, when you truly changed, did you see that it took time for people to believe and that you needed to extend kind of like an understanding that, Hey, yeah, you'll get there. I genuinely know I've changed, but people around you may not have. Was that something you went through as well and experienced? Man, that's such a big and powerful question. And I, I want to, I want to answer it with the understanding that the listener, this is probably something really big for, for the listener. What people think of you, the people you love the most, after you've wronged them and you've shown them what your character has been over and over and over. What they think of you should be the least concern of your life. As, as wild as that sounds. Because then your journey is not authentically true to you. You're doing it for somebody else. Everything I've done, I have done only to do what's right for me, not for anybody else. I didn't do what was right for my kids. Uh, innately, I did, but I didn't do it for my kids. I didn't, I didn't, I only did it for me. And the reason I say that is when you have expectations of what others think of you, you're creating an unrealistic and unattainable expectation. Mm -hmm. The only thing that you can control is what you do, what you say, and what you think. You, No matter what you do, you can't change somebody else. Nor should you try. 
because guess who you think you are if you try to change somebody else? <laughs> you think you're God. And so for me, man, even to this day, I know it. The people who love me the most, I can hear it in their voice. There's still a seed of doubt. And it's okay, man. I still love you. You know what I mean? I love you. You don't have to you don't have to have faith in me. You don't have to have a hundred percent confidence. You, I don't I don't need that to love you. What you think of me has no bearing on my ability to love you for you. Plain and simple. My I wasn't supposed supposed to get my children back for like five years. That's pretty much what my ex-wife told me. Now, what could I do in that situation? Five years? There's no way. There's what's the point of living? What's the point of living? Five years? That's all I have is my kids. Like, what's the point of living? To I, I can't I can't do that. That's one way. The other way is God's will is God's will. And all I can do is all I can do. And all I could do is to do it simply because it's the right thing to do and nothing more. So every opportunity somebody you love gives you to show up as the man that you're becoming, well, be that man. Any little opportunity someone gives you to show where you're really at, you do it if it's really where you're at. And so it got to the point where, you know, I'm living in Connecticut and my children are in Virginia and it got to the, and it's, it's probably like 10 months in, uh, well, you know, about four months in, in the hour a week, the hour, every other week I would get, I would drive from Connecticut to see my kids for an hour. I didn't say nothing. Whatever, whatever you give me, I'll take. You know, who am I to? I held on to all these. It's your fault, blah blah blah. Screw everybody. Uh, it's all your fault that I relapsed. It's all everyone's fault that my life's a disaster. It's all the trauma. It's it's my dad. It's everyone but me. Everyone but me is the problem. <laughs> and uh, and then you know, I got to the point where I just. Started becoming a man who was a man who showed up. And my kid gets sick. I'm getting a tattoo. I'm in Massachusetts. I'm getting a tattoo. My ex-wife calls me and she's like, I'm sick. Our oldest son is sick. My boyfriend's sick. And our youngest son is about to be admitted into the hospital. Like, I have no one to call but you. Can you come help? I looked at my tattoo artist. I said, hey, man, wrap it up. I got to go. And I drove seven hours to Virginia to go be with my son. I didn't say a word. I had an opportunity to be a father. So I went, and I was a father. Stayed with him for four days. It was beautiful. It was the longest time I got to spend with one of my children in so long. I was so grateful for that. And I knew, hey, that was that. I got that chance. It's not going to happen again anytime soon. I'm grateful for what I had. I'm grateful for what I had. That's what God gave me. And I should be grateful for it. And I just kept showing up, man. And, 
you know, interestingly enough, one year to the day that I lost my children, my ex-wife gave them back to me. I didn't have any clue. I didn't ask. I just showed up. I didn't say a word. I didn't tell people what I was doing this, doing that. I'm no, I'm changed. I'm changed. I'm ch- show up. Let them see who you are. And even if they don't, still show up as who you are. You got to be true to you, man. You got to honor your relationship with God. You got to honor to honor your relationship with God and to not love yourself then you don't love God because you're saying you know better than God does. If you don't love yourself and the almighty deems you worthy and your inner voice says, I'm not worthy, then your inner voice is also saying I have a God complex because I think I'm God to judge myself. And so that's it, man. You just show up for, show up for yourself, show up for God, love yourself, do the right thing. And the right thing will happen. That's all you can do. Never expect anybody to forgive you. Just give forgiveness freely. You're liberating yourself. Don't give forgiveness expecting to get it in return. That's not forgiveness. That's a trade. That's a transaction. Give forgiveness freely to everybody. Man, how many people say the Lord's Prayer on a daily basis? And how many of them actually live the values and what the Lord's Prayer is? How many of us forgive others for their trespasses against us? How many of us ask for forgiveness for our trespasses against them? It's We say it. We say it. But do we do it? Yeah. Well, Tark, my friend, that is super powerful. and. Uh... Yeah, I follow you on that. Um, hey, how can men connect with you outside of this podcast? So right now they can connect with me uh, on Instagram primarily. Uh, and it's uh, Tarek underscore Chaudhry. So that's T-A-R-E-K underscore C-H-A-U-D-H-A-R-Y. I might think about changing that. We'll see. Um, <laughs> but if the, if there's somebody who really wants to connect, um, and have a conversation, which I would love and welcome um, in whatever capacity I'm available. Just send me a DM right now. The, the website is getting stood up. The book will be out in uh, late December. And then we're actually going to start rolling out the content for our free offers um, within the next, ideally within the next 15 to 30 days. And then we'll have some actual, real coursework and offers that we're going to start rolling out about 45 days after that. But Instagram right now is primarily just follow me or shoot me a DM. If you actually want to have a conversation and um, go from there, man. So. And I'll have all the details on reaching out to you in the show notes, the the most current stuff at that time. So I appreciate it. Tark. I appreciate you, you, Mike. Appreciate your openness. I wish I could give you a hug right now. Absolutely brother. I'm going to give you a big, well, we'd you a have big to give virtual hugs and hug. go to EDM and barbecue and all that. It's going to be a good weekend, my friend. That's going to be a really good weekend. Absolutely. Well, Tarek, thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. 
Thanks so much, my friend, for joining me on another episode. If you found the information within the show helpful, please leave a review on the platform you're listening to. It helps raise the show's visibility so other men can join us in breaking free. See you on the next episode. And remember to continue putting yourself out there. Have a great one.